From PRN, this is Alana Castro-Gilliard. On today's episode, we have two guests that you may have read from before. Hey, I'm Brian Carmody. Other is known as J.B. Carmody, or the Sheriff of Sodium. Hi, I'm Horace Ahmed. And Dr. Horace Lakers on Twitter. We're having a roundtable discussion on Comlex 2 PE today. But before we get started, I want to talk about all of the letters we'll be throwing out today. FSMB, aka the Federation of State Medical Boards, COCA, or COCA, Commission on Osteopathic College Accreditation, AOA, the American Osteopathic Association, AACOM, American Association of Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine, Comlex Level 2 PE, the in-person physical exam test for osteopathic students needed for licensure, the USMLE Step 2 CS, the same test but for MD students, which was recently discontinued, the NBOME, the National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, and the NBME, the National Board of Medical Examiners, the DO and MD equivalents. We at PRN believe it's important to have these hard conversations about medical education and advocacy while maintaining an appropriate and respectful tone. The opinions expressed in this episode belong solely to those that express them. We hope that this episode will lead to continued dialogue about this topic. Okay, so let's begin our conversation today with what's been happening in the news recently. Uh, NBME and the FSMB announced that the USMLE Step 2 CS would be discontinued. Um, The NBOME, so the creators of osteopathic examinations, have released statements indicating that they have no intention of discontinuing the Comlex Level 2 PE, the equivalent to the USMLE Step 2 CS. So many different words here in letters. Um, So we have a few angles that we can start on for this conversation, but I want to start on your thoughts about the statements that have been released so far by the NBOME. Yeah, I think so. I think they're definitely are just struggling. And I think they're in a situation where from the beginning of the pandemic, they had the option to suspend the exam and they didn't make that decision. And since then, they've been kind of under heat and they've been scrambling a little bit to figure out what they need to do. And I think this is just a continuation of that struggle and that scramble that they've kind of got themselves into. And I, I know they're a well-intentioned organization. They're nice people. I've, I've met a lot of the leadership, but I think, you know, their statement doesn't really say much. It's, it's a very long statement, the one that they released yesterday also. And the students right now, they need answers. They need action. So it's just a frustrating situation all around. And, and honestly, that's all I can really say about it. Yeah, from my standpoint, their messaging is um, disingenuous. I, I think that the NBOME and the NBME before they canceled the exam was guilty of the same thing, of creating this, um, uh, positioning themselves so that they appear to be the defender of, of patient safety. And that if you're opposed to the exam, then you know, you're opposed to um, safe practice. And of course, that's not the case. You know, there's many reasons you can be opposed to the exam. I don't think that anybody's opposed to having competent physicians. But there's a number of other questions that, that get raised. I mean, who, uh, when is the time to do that? Who is the person who should be evaluating uh, competency? Um, who should bear the costs of that evaluation? What validity evidence should be required of an instrument that, that we use to assess competency? Those are all legitimate questions that I think deserve answers instead of saying, well, if you're opposed to this, you're, you're opposed to patient safety. You know, I think that's, that's a, a false dichotomy that's, uh, that really doesn't um, that, that doesn't advance anything that we want, honestly. 
Certainly, I've been, I've been hearing a lot of students saying, you know, so the NBOME, this, this exam was created around 2004, I believe, and a lot of students saying, does this mean that any other physician that hasn't taken this exam before 2004, are they not safe for patients? And it's an interesting thought that keeps on being brought up in the Twitter world and in just, you know, conversations between students. Yeah, and it's a fair question that that I think doesn't get answered, because if you're going to take the logical position of you have to pass this exam in order to demonstrate your competency, then that becomes a fair question. And I think that in, instead of giving an honest, fair answer, which is, well, yeah, we'd love to make people do that, but we don't have a mechanism of doing it. Um, yeah, they can't say that because that'll irritate some of the, you know, some of their political support and their base. But um, so it leads to people skirting that issue and sidestepping the question. But if that's the logical plank that you're going to stand on is you have to pass this exam to demonstrate competency, then that, I think that's a very fair question that you should be called upon to answer. So a lot of this has come to be because of the pandemic. Outside of the logistical issues of the pandemic, do you think that there are any reasons that this exam should be discontinued? So I, I me personally, in theory, I understand the idea and the motivation behind having a single unified or sorry, not unified, we'll get to that later, but a single uh, objective exam to assess patient safety. I think I understand what the, what the goal was there, but I think the question is even outside of a pandemic setting, how much value does this exam have for the cost that it incurs? The literal cost to students is, is over a thousand dollars at minimum just to buy the exam than to travel so that's a question to ask. And then is it even accurately assessing anything? Uh, and they always cite, there's a study that they cite that we may get into later, but I don't know that it really assesses clinical acumen or, cl or clinical safety because I personally know of an individual who just publicly spoke and you know of him too, Tyler King, who was the former president of SOMA and he, he may be the nicest person that I know. And he filled the humanistic domain, which he wrote on his Twitter. And, and when I see an example like that, it really brings into question for me the entire validity of the exam itself. So I, in theory, I understand the importance and why you would maybe want to have this type of exam. But also, I don't know why it couldn't be administered at a local level anyway. But I think in practice, practically in, in the real world, I don't know that this exam is really needed at all, even outside of a pandemic, even if things were completely normal. I, I was not really in favor of this exam because I didn't feel that it really was doing much and just costing a lot to students mentally and financially? Yeah, I think the exam is, is plagued by questions of validity. I mean, just like USMLE Step 2 CS was, I think there, there's very poor evidence that the exam does um, what it purports to do, or even if it does, that it does so in an efficient or um, you know, a cost-effective way. And um, you know, look, it's, it's 2021. I mean, we've had now 17 years to acquire validity evidence and there's been sparingly little, you know, from the NBME for USMLE Step 2CS and from the NBOME for the, for the level 2PE. Um, you know, I'd be happy to discuss the, you know, the, the paper in academic medicine that sort of gets bandied about as a, as a way of justifying the exam. But I think if you, if you look at that paper, even a cursory read, there's, I think there's very limited inference that you can draw from that. And I think that it's it's very fair to demand a higher standard if if like I said we are we are concerned about patient safety we are concerned about uh, you know competent medical practice um, but demanding validity of an instrument that's used to 
uh, to vouch for those things, that's that's a fair thing to do. I recently, just going on med Twitter and talking to friends, have heard this uh, monetary way to think it out of uh, there's about a little less than 8,000 osteopathic medical students every year. And each student pays about $1,300 per exam. And when you add that up, it ends up being around over $10 million uh, just to find that 1% of people that don't pass this exam. And so you were talking about cost effectiveness and that really hit me at least was something you know, that we're spending $10 million of student money that is taken out of loans and will eventually cost a lot more to find that 1%. Um, and is this the right way to do it? Yeah, I, again, that's a fair question that's often sidestepped is that, um, you know, people will will defend these exams and they'll say, well, you know, but, 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 um, you know, the, the public and the state boards, they find these things valuable. And I think if that's the assertion, then I think it's fair to say, well, you know, if, if the state boards derive such value from these exams, then maybe they should subsidize the cost. You know, maybe it should not be uh, accrued at student, the prevailing student interest rate, you know, on, on, the, on the backs of students. I think that's a fair question, too, if you say that, yes, it is a valuable exam. But again, I think there's limited evidence, even after, you know, almost two decades of, of use, there's limited evidence that it's that it that it does what it claims to do, or that it does much of anything well. So I think at this point we've we've established that a lot of students are not in favor of this exam continuing. Um, what are the ways that students and other stakeholders, and who might those stakeholders be, uh, who oppose the continuation of the PE? How, how can they show their opinions other than complaining on social media? Because that doesn't seem to be getting much traction. I, I have opinions about that. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, students have asserted their position and the NBME has asserted their position. And I think that um, the broad student sentiment is unlikely to change. And I think that the NBOME's position is unlikely to change. They um, I believe that they truly believe that this is a useful instrument. Um, I, I, I also believe they believe they have a um, financial incentive to feel that way. Um, but I don't think those positions are going to change. And so students demanding that the NBOME act, I think that's an ineffective strategy. I think that if you're trying to accomplish any sort of meaningful change, one of the first things that you want to do is you want to conduct a little bit of a power analysis and you want to figure out um, you know, who has the power to make the change that you want or, or who has the power to um, to eliminate something that's preventing the change that you want, because you want to focus your your lobbying efforts and your political capital on people who actually have the power, or the willingness to change. And I think in this case, there, there are a few things. So I, I, I think there's probably three things that the students, if they care about this issue, that they should consider. Um, and I'm going to say, too, sometimes um, I've had people actually say, oh, you know, I can't believe you're talking about this stuff, you know, um, there's nothing, the things that I'm about to say, there's nothing wrong. We live in America. I mean, this is how stuff gets done. I mean, if people disagree with you, I mean, we, we disagree all the time. You work through the, the processes that we have. So um, thing number one, I think that if you're an osteopathic medical student who has taken USMLE step one and step two CK, I think you should seriously consider um, taking USMLE step three to pursue licensure in, in most of the states that, um, that allow that. There are a handful of states that do not, that specifically have a, a complex USA requirement. And if you intend to practice in those states, then, you know, obviously you can't do this. But 
um, you know, it's very fair to vote with your wallet to say, I disagree with this exam. I'm going to pursue licensure a different way. We do that kind of stuff all the time. Again, it's America. You know, you, you take your money and, and you put it somewhere else. Thing number two is, I think that um, if you live in a state that has a complex requirement, I think that you should talk to your state legislator and you should say, you know, hey, I, I want to come back and practice in this state. You know, I, I my dream has been to serve people in, in this state. And, um, and you, you know, the national board and the, the medical board here in this state is making it harder for osteopathic students to do that. You know, we have this, this unnecessary requirement to take a particular exam. And, um, and I don't think it should be that way. And see if you can get your state legislator interested in it, because the medical boards are ultimately beholden to the state legislator. Uh, this, and so you use your political, um, whatever leverage you can generate to, um, to have the medical board reconsider that, that requirement for Comlex. Because, I mean, look, I'm an MD. Um, I've passed the USMLE. I could go to any state in the United States of America and apply for licensure and have it be considered. It's silly to think that a DO who passed the same test that I did, it's silly to think that you couldn't go to any state and, um, and practice just like I could if you pass the same test. That's foolish. I don't think there's any good reason to, to maintain that standard. So that's thing number two is if, if you live in one of those states, if you intend to practice in one of those states, then, then talk to your representatives. Thing number three, um, I think you need to lobby your, your national organizations because it's ultimately... The, the AOA and the COCA that give the NBOME their power. Those are the organizations that, um, that keep that organization propped up regardless of what they do because they're the ones that insist on having a complex passage requirement to graduate from a college of osteopathic medicine. Um, it's noteworthy to me that the LCME that accredits MD schools um, has very high standards. I mean, I think anybody would agree they have very high standards. They do not require that MD students pass the USMLE. Most schools, in matter of fact, do, but there's no accreditation requirement that they do. And I think um, it's silly to insist upon that as a condition of accreditation, because ultimately that is the thing more than anything else that keeps the NBOME in business. And if that, if that um, condition were changed, I think suddenly the NBOME is going to be a lot more receptive to, um, to student concerns, to school concerns, to medical board concerns, to concerns of anyone else, because they will no longer be propped up in a business sense. So in my opinion, those are the three things that people that, that care about this issue should do. And all those things are completely above the board and well within um, the range of, of, of the way that things get done in the United States of America. I think everything Dr. Kamadi just said is absolutely excellent. And I agree wholeheartedly with the three different avenues he gave. One thing that you mentioned earlier was about social media. I think social media is important. So I don't want, you know, the people tweeting about it, people uh, writing on Facebook or especially Twitter, it definitely generates their attention in, in terms of the NBO, me and the DO leadership. I, I know that personally. So as long as it's professional and it's not, you know, anything ridiculous, if you're tweeting out your opinions about the exam, you're concerned that it's not a valid exam, you're concerned about cost you're concerned that with the PE not being delayed you may have to leave your intern year and go take a, a, a practice patient test that's another very valid concern you can even take those concerns to media outlets which are also on twitter local news especially in illinois pennsylvania and california where the three testing sites are you can you can tweet at legislators in those three states 
And if enough people tweet or, or bring up a certain topic and they uh, tag the legislator, they bring it up in the meetings. The staff that's in con controlling the social media, they will bring it up in their meetings. So there's definitely value in social media. Then beyond that, you know, I'll speak more to the DO organizational side since I have worked, you know, in pretty much every organization in a different capacity. You know, SOMA is one organization that does have a lot of influence and pull because they are the student arm of the AOA, number one. Number two, they have 16,000 members and they're all members that are very active. They're the members that are most likely going to stay involved in, in organized DO leadership. So if they're making statements and if they're passing resolutions that are very strong in a certain direction, the AOA will recognize that as extremely important to their own future because they're relying on our base to fill their ranks in the future. And if they're doing things against us or, or disregarding our opinion or our views on whatever it is, whether it's complex or something else, they are just hurting themselves financially in the future. And they understand that. So if you're a student joining your local SOMA chapter and authoring resolutions is one key way. We, SOMA just passed a resolution a few months ago calling for a single licensing exam. Another one could be passed, you know, saying remove, they, they want SOMA to lobby to COCA to remove that accreditation requirement that requires students to take the, NB, the NBOME exams. It's just one standard. It would just, it would be a very simple resolution. And passing, and then sometimes students will say, oh, well, it's never gonna work. It's not gonna happen. You don't underestimate what you can make happen. And it's important for you to publicly and officially take a stance in the first place that we're against this exam and we don't want to take it anymore. And, and you'll be surprised at how far that'll take you. The, both SOMA and COSGP, which is the other student organization, get to speak at COCA's annual meeting once to twice a year. And they get to submit a presentation to them about what their prime concerns are. So it's, it's important for students to reach out to those organizations, their representatives, and tell them that this is their priority one or priority two, so that their leaders are presenting this to COCA annually. So you, you keep normalizing this discussion. When I was a student, you couldn't even talk about these things. It was, it was out of the realm of possibility. And so now we've gone past that point. Now it's a, it's a realistic discussion. It's a realistic possibility. And we're getting enough momentum now to make some action happen. The last thing I'll say is as DOs, we're a smaller community. So it's easier to get access to some of our leadership. You'll be surprised how, how far an email will go. So, so don't underestimate reaching out to these people. And I know it, it may sound like a you know, Disneyland fairy tale, but they have listened in the past to, to students. They, they've done it multiple times. Sometimes it's taken longer than it should, but don't underestimate the, your power as a student and, and utilize those avenues that we have. Those are all really great tips. I will add in as someone who works with SOMA frequently um, that we have brought this to COCA previous to uh, the new news of uh, C or sorry CS being canceled. Um, and we've, we've brought it up at least five or six times in the past six months with various organizations at various meetings about cancellation of the PE or modification of it. Um, I will also say that the AOA has asked us to clarify that the NBOME is technically a self-regulating system. And so, and this is how the NBOME views themselves. And so they, they feel that truthfully, it is more a COCA issue and the AOA feels very separate from the COCA, COCA, the people that accredit schools. So if students are going to 
go towards any avenue between the AOA and COCA, COCA seems more likely to be a good avenue, whereas SOMA could be the avenue to talk to the AOA specifically because they do have a lot of meetings with us. I actually had a meeting yesterday with uh, the presidents and the CEO of um, the AOA. One thing I'll comment is even that's true. The AOA it cannot regulate or speak to the NBOME or right. And, and co and so that, but the, here's the thing going back to the point that we're a very small community, the leadership, they all intimately know each other. We all know who the other person is and there's not this formal barrier between us. If, if the AOA and double ACOM, which is another organization, if, if we're going to say there's three major organizations, it's the AOA, it's double ACOM and it's the COCA, right? If the, if double ACOM and the AOA are publicly taking a stance or communicating, which they can independently, that they feel they can say it externally or they can say it internally to the NBOME and COCA that we don't feel that we need to continue with this exam. We need to have a single licensing exam or we need to suspend the PE. That will make a huge impact. So I would say as a student, don't let them punt you to COCA if, if, if they bring that up because they themselves taking a stance internally and externally, if they were willing to do that, would make a huge impact. Also very valid points. Uh, just to ask you a question specifically, Dr. Ahmed, do you think that taking the Comlex Level 2 PE demonstrated you and your colleagues' clinical skills accurately? You kind of touch on this a little bit, but just focusing on this. You know, it was a very, uh, it's not a practical exam. You, you go in there and it's an actor. So, you know, how was the actor feeling? Did they get a good night's sleep? Did they remember their script, their lines? You know, did how, how good of a makeup job did they do for some of the physical findings? You know, those are factors that are out of my control. You know, there's only three sites in the country. Did I get enough sleep? You know, what kind of condition am I in? Am I good at typing? Because for, they give you like a, a set time that you have to type the entire note in. And then the other issue is after I took the exam, I don't, I don't see how they graded me or how I did. So there's no way for me to really know how I did. I just go off of a subjective feeling, which everyone feels bad after they take any test. At least I do. And so you always wonder like, oh man, did I do this wrong or did I do this right? And so I, I think it's just more of a exercise of if you can speak English. Honestly, I think that's what the question, that's what the test is. And then when I heard that my friend Tyler, when he posted that series, like I mentioned earlier, if someone like him can fail on a competency of communication, I don't, you know, to me, it just seems really random. I don't, I don't know that it really assessed my clinical competency that well. I think if you were to do this exam in the future, it should be done at the local level. I don't see why that can't happen with your local community patients. It's just, I don't think it's, it's that effective. I, I understand in theory how it could be, but I'm also not sure how you could make it such that even in, in practice that it would be a very effective exam. So I personally, I, I really don't know if it, if it assessed me well. I didn't, there's no way for me to know. I didn't see how they graded me. So it's just, it's just really, it's a really confusing test. I viewed it as just a check mark that I had to go to Chicago. I got to eat some deep dish pizza. I mean, that's what it was for me more than anything. I remember the pizza the most. Dr. Carmody, did you end up taking this exam? I'm not really sure where you are in your training. You're pretty young. Yeah, so I was, uh, I, I, I graduated from medical school in 2007. The USMLE Step 2 CS exam came online for us similarly in 2004. So um, I took it in 2006. So I was one of the first groups to, to go through. 
I remember, um, you know, when I was first in medical school, there was a lot of political action by medical students to try to prevent the exam from coming into place that failed. But then I remember um, our dean actually talking to us about the class. I still have memory of this now saying, um, you know, you don't need to study beyond um, what it, you know, you can look at on the train ride to Philadelphia. It's an English proficiency exam. We expect all of you to pass. And, you know, it wasn't a big deal for me. It, it took a hit out of my wallet, but, um, you know, uh, fortunately I passed and I didn't really think critically about it, uh, you know, until some years later. Very interesting. Yeah. Like I said, you're a pretty young looking guy. I don't know <laughs> how long it's been around. <laughs> you know, one thing I fear, sorry, sorry to cut you, but one thing I fear is like, I, I think a few years ago, enough people started saying, oh, too many people pass. And then what they did is they just increased the failure rate. <laughs> yeah, so. That's correct. So, so yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll comment on that a little bit. I'm just going to, I'm going to make an observation and people can take what, what it is. Um, there will never be a, a board passage exam that has a hundred percent pass rate. I can promise that. Because, you know, and, and, and that means not, I'm not just talking about NBOME exams or NBME exams, I'm talking about any specialty. In matter of fact, if you look at, if you look at the pass rates for every single specialties board exam. So these are people who have passed USMLE or passed Comlex. They've, you know, completed residency. Um, you know, they're, they're seeking board certification. What do you reckon the pass rates are in every specialty across the board? I'll go ahead and tell you, they, they range from around 86% to around 94, 95%. Now, isn't that, what a coincidence. I mean, how, how could it be the case that, um, that every single exam in every single specialty, you know, with people coming in from all different backgrounds, how is it the case that we find that, you know, one out of, you know, 20 to one out of seven is incompetent? And, 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 you know, un, unbefitting of, of getting board certification. I think, of course, the answer is that's not true. I think the answer is that's what the market will, will bear. And uh, we've come to expect um, a pass rate in that neighborhood for those types of exams. And, uh, you know, if a board came out with an exam that only 70% of people passed, you watch. People will come with, uh, you know, pitchforks and torches and, you know, the mob will say, you know, we're not putting up with that. And, and you watch, things will change. On the other hand, you have a board that has a 98, 99% pass. They better start nudging that down because pretty soon people are going to say, why do I have to take this expensive exam um, if everybody passes it? And so, um, you know, several years ago for the USMLE Step 2 CS exam, that was a, a, a piece that was used to, to criticize that exam was to say that, you know, almost all um, US MD students pass the exam on their first time. Those who fail it on their first time, almost all of them pass it on their reattempt without even any additional preparation. And so um, someone did the math, um, and there's an article in 2016 in New England Journal of Medicine where they did the math, and it was on the order of millions of dollars. I don't have a reference at my fingertips, but to find a single person who fails the exam more than, more than twice. And, um, and it calls into question, kind of like I said, what are we trying to accomplish with these exams? And is these, are, are, you know, are using these exams, is that the way to accomplish the thing that we think we're accomplishing? And so um, I think that's a useful calculation to apply to these NBOME exams as well. I mean, there's, there's been, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about this, uh, you know, the paper from the NBOME that showed that um, COMLEX level two PE 
uh, predicted future physician discipline. And I would urge anyone who um, has heard that claim or seen it asserted. And, and the trouble thing, you know, the troublesome thing with stuff like that is once it's in the literature, it gets put as a little, you know, subscript, um, you know, note. Uh, you know, someone will assert, oh, you know, these exams are well known to, um, you know, to protect the public, you know, um, superscript number, such and such. And, and people, unless you pull that reference and look at it, it's hard to know from what that comes. But, uh, you know, I've, I've written about it a little bit myself. Um, you know, I think there's multiple troublesome things about that assertion. I'll name a couple just, just quickly, but then I'll leave the rest to you all. Um, you know, the biggest problem is that um, the paper that makes this assertion, um, they found an association with one of the subscores for the level 2P exam. Um, when they grade this exam, they have a humanistic domain subscore and this uh, biomedical, biomechanical domain subscore. The humanistic domain had no association with physician discipline, which is kind of curious because you might think that that's the subscore that might predict some of the issues that, that, that could lead to physician discipline problems. It wasn't. It was the, actually this, this level 2 PBD subscore. Um, and so even if you accept that association at face value, there's, there's a huge problem with it, which is that state boards don't get the subscore. So, I mean, it could be the most useful thing in the world, but they're not getting it. They get a pass or a fail designation from the exam, just like you guys do. So um, it, it really, that, that's a serious problem to say, oh, it predicts all this important stuff, but yet all that's under the hood. You know, so that's that to me, I think that's a that's a, a big problem. Um, you know, the second thing is, again, there's a there's a major, uh, you know, effect size problem. You know, the the outcome of this study uh, and, and to clarify, this is something that was in academic medicine last year. Um, the outcome was that I mean, they just looked through state board disciplinary records and, uh, and found people who had had disciplinary action. And I, I mean, I think we can all agree that's a meaningful outcome, but it's a rare outcome. I mean, it's an outcome that happened. Um, Oh, I wrote it down somewhere. It, you know, out of out of all the physicians that were included in the study, you know, 0.7% had disciplinary action. Um, and if you look at, at, at what the effect size was for a, a substantial difference in complex level two PE BD subscore, you could have a four standard deviation difference, you know, from somebody in the 95th percentile to the fifth percentile. And their absolute risk difference is still like 0.45% different. So you'd have to, you'd have to, to, I mean, it's ridiculous to think that that's an efficient means. You'd, you'd have to exclude everybody who has a score like below the 95th percentile in order to find like a couple, a handful of extra people who didn't have disciplinary license action. And, you know, I think similarly, if you're going to say, I mean, again, I think we all agree that that state dis board disciplinary action, that's a meaningful outcome. But if you think about what things physicians get in trouble for with state boards, I mean, it's it's often substance abuse issues or inappropriate sexual conduct or being convicted with a crime or, um, you know, gross negligence or, um, you know, Medicare fraud or things like that. Um do we really think that any exam that you take as a third year medical student is going to be an accurate prediction of those? Or, or, or might a reasonable person say, hey, you know, we're, we're fed up with physician discipline, you know, so we're going we're gonna, to you know, get these incompetent physicians out of practice. You wouldn't think of doing it this way. You might say, oh, well, you know what? It turns out that 30% of physician discipline is related to substance use. So we're going to start 
uh, screening physicians for substance abuse. I mean, I'm not saying I support that, but I'm saying that would certainly be a more efficient means of eliminating those people from practice than, than clinging to this expensive level two PE. I'll make sure to attach the paper that you're referencing to our Instagram post. And whenever we make a graphic, we always put resources on our posts as well that are mentioned. So I will make sure to have that on there so that students can review it themselves um, or anyone listening can review it themselves. So thank you for that analysis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Edward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. This episode was hosted and produced by Alana Castro-Gilliard and edited by Peter Samuel. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. This is PRN.